Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bornelsen. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we discuss a brand new book titled The Political Life of Memory, Birsa Munda in Contemporary India. It's authored by Rahul Ranjan, who is who, and was published earlier this year. The book is a study of representations of the life of Birsa Munda and of how the state and Asivat Adivasi use memory as a political tool to lay claims to the past of Birsa movement. The author, Rahul Ranjan is an interdisciplinary scholar with a key interest in environmental anthropology and humanities, political ecology and social justice, ethnography and qualitative methods. Over the past decade, he has ethnographically worked on the long-standing conflict between social movements, indigenous people's struggles and extraction politics in India. And more recently, he's undertaken ethnographic fieldwork in the Western Himalayas to explore the contours of rivers' rights and community mobilization. This as part of his current position as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Oslo Metropolitan University in Norway, working on the project Riverine Rights, the Currents and Consequences of Legal Innovations on the Rights of Rivers. He has a PhD in political anthropology from the School of Advanced Study, University of London, and prior to that, degrees in politics from Jawaharlal Nehru University and University of Delhi. And he's also, I very happily admit, a very good friend. But the book we're talking about today is based on his long-term research and doctoral work, and that is the book, The Political Life of Memory, Birsa Munda in Contemporary. Welcome, Rahul, and, and thank you so much for joining us. Very happy to be here today. Already in this relatively short introduction to the episode, I mentioned the name of Birsa Munda, I think maybe three or four times. I mean, not least because he's in the title of your book. Now, he may not be particularly well known to many listeners. Why is he so important for your study? First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such a great pleasure to be speaking with you, Kenneth. And it's such an interesting day to have a conversation about Birsamunda because we're recording this on India's Independence Day, which is the 15th of August. And often this story about India's independence, we hear little to nothing about what it might mean to think about this primary anchor for political consciousness or any aspiration of freedom through the prism of an Adivasi anti-colonial, anti-Zamindar rebellion. Through my book, I try and tell the contradiction and irony of this independence. But for a broader audience, I mean, Bissamunda was an Adivasi anti-colonial icon who staged the resistance against the British Raj and Zamindar at the end of 19th century in Chota Nagpur, which is presently Jharkhand. He's significant for two reasons. First is that Bissa Ulgulan, and Ulgulan is a word for rebellion, was an organized, consorted, and quite political display of Adivasi resistance. And it was a consorted and political display because it had happened at the end of 19th century in eastern India, a region that's fraught with several other rebellions that had been happening against or in the background of a longer agrarian distress. So what had happened is that with the end of 
And with the emergence of Birsa as a political leader, the Birsa Ulgulan led to absolute shift in the consolidation of power assertion. So you, for instance, if you look at what we know as Chota Nagpur Tenancy Act, which is until today remains quite significant in customary law and guarantees rights to Adivasi over their land, is an outcome and in fact was prompted by the Birsa Rebellion. So he was, in a way, his movement was key in pushing forth the power and consolidation of power assertion in the larger scale. On another, I think, more personally, Bissamunda and his movement also produced a cultural milieu in which several songs, hymns, and a lot of oral history had begun to be widespread in the region. So in fact, if you look at the biographer of Bissamunda, K.S. Singh, who was formerly an, an IAS and an, and an anthropologist, he was driven to Bissite by chanting in the morning, which prompted him to actually go on and write his book, which was initially called Dust Storm and later became part of his doctoral research at uh, SOAS at University of London and eventually became the book that we have now. So for me, through all of these various forms of obvious of cultural milieu that Bissa created, for me, he's a political maverick who actively pursued the social cause of his community and from quite early on in his life, he cultivated a, a very refined sense of political consciousness. This meant that he mobilized an Adivasi worldview, which was steeped in social norms, in religious practice, you know, in customary practices that was deemed very challenging and often unacceptable for both upper caste Hindus as well as British Raj under the ambit of their civilizing mission. I mentioned earlier that this book is the outcome of your earlier doctoral research, which was when I also had the chance to, to first meet you when you were finishing work on this project. And I, I think you must have started this research maybe some six or seven years ago, and, and now it has sort of culminated in the book that came out earlier this year. But I wanted to ask you what aroused or attracted you to this particular topic that eventually led to the making of this book. Yeah, thanks for the question. Often you look at your book and you think when you must have begun and then you get interposed with time scale that are very different from how ideas shaped into writing and then finally publication. But I remember quite early on in life as a young high school student in Rachi, which is not my hometown, but my grandparents lived and I had to move away to get my studies done in the same city. I was often confronted to or had several encounters with this massively growing body of built environment of Birsamunda, often statues and memorials. And I would think to myself, what purpose does a built environment serve in displaying a historical figure? And then from there onwards as a young adult in a small city to all the way to my MPhil in JNU, where I finally returned to grapple with the relevance of this. So for my MPhil, I wrote a dissertation on Land Acquisition Act and its conflict with Adivasi movements in peri-urban area of Jharkhand. And in particular, I was interested in addressing the long-standing conflict that emerges from within the Land Acquisition Act. And as you know, Kenneth, you've done extensive body of work that I refer to in book, which includes public purposes. That's a clause which is often invoked against the Adivasi's interest. And I realized during the fieldwork that in academia, as we call it, not a good fit for political policy analysis. And I began to draw a lot on narrative 
and set of narratives as a creative tool. And I would often return to my supervisor then in JNU, who would then be very surprised to see me drifting away from political science into narrative and anthropology. But, you know, this drive towards working on narrative was actually inspired by endless Adivasi activists that I met during my six months of pilot study in Ranchi for my MPhil, and especially women who were effectively driven out of their own land for establishment of a public property, often used Birsa as a metaphor. And I carried that weight of metaphor with me while I returned writing to my MPhil dissertation. And it was through hours of listening to those interviews, but also having had the opportunity to be in the field, that I decided to place the significance of memory in itself as a form of political tool, and then decided to move abroad for writing my research in London. And it was in London during my PhD, I learned so much about history and memory conflict. I did extensive review of literature, uh, literature that is borrowed from memory studies, which is well defined and explained. And I must flag something here as we go on talking about memory, that my research is not on memory of violence. It does not draw on literature that emerged from episodic violence. Some of the crucial studies, which were very effective in giving me tools to do research, for instance, the work by Gyanendra Pandey or Urvashi Bhutalia on partition. But my research on memory looks especially at everyday forms of mobilization, so not as episodic. But I mean, this research wasn't free of challenges, I must admit. I was trained in political science, then I went to an anthropology department where I was doing sort of political anthropology. So for four years of my research in London, I learned so much about history and memory conflict, and I began to use memory as a tool, which is very often under various circumstances, you can find it very malleable. And we know that it's been effectively also used for appropriation. But I really enjoyed this creative tension. And my supervisor, Corinne Lennox, who is a, above all a kind human, provided that close reading of drafts and comment on ideas with extreme kindness as I progressed through my writing and fieldwork. So the making of the book is actually long drawn from the time early on in my MPhil all the way to the end of my PhD. And as I speak, I think the book grows on. Yeah. I wanted to dwell a little bit on something you touched upon just now, and that is what you call memory politics, which is, of course, a key theme in your book. And also, I mean, we, we heard just now a, a particular interest of yours that kind of evolved, in a sense, from your field experience. But could you tell us a bit more what you more specifically mean about memory politics and perhaps also in extension of this how significant would you say that memory politics is in India today? I think memory is central to, it's an orienting tool in the book. And I had a particular interest in this, which stems from the fact that the established literature, which is not a lot, I must admit, on Birsa Munda, remains significantly steeped in historical research, which means that a number of people, including and prominently K.S. Singh, while writing his book on Bissamunda, constantly invoke historical evidences and records as forms of claim making. And it really genuinely benefited me in thinking about the project, but I was also always surprised what it might mean to think of Bissa and his relevance and, you know, that vignette in the field where women would drop or often use Bissa as a form of a metaphor, 
was a driving force in me thinking about memory more deeply. I have a very perhaps simple way of explaining what is memory and how it's different from history. So history is often, and historians may not like listening to this, is an objective study of the past, often explained in a linear progression. So it's a succession of events leading up to acts leading up to an event. A memory for me in research, in my research, is more horizontal and not so much vertical. So I often in the book describe memory as a personalization of history. It's the representation of history and not history in itself. So I was interested in how what Bissa did is incredible and why is it that relevant today? So I was interested in looking at narratives of personalizing historical events such as Birsa Ulgulan, both at an individual level through stories of activists, but also at a collective level among Adivasi. And often we think of Adivasi as this homogenous group. And just for the sake of listeners, there are different words that you use in India to describe what an indigenous person means. So for instance, in Assam or large parts of northeastern India, Adivasi is actually not an acceptable terminology to describe or self-identify as indigenous because it has had a conflicted history of migration and so on. So I was interested specifically in memory because it tells you something about personalization of history, which is more textured and flat, much more participatory, and often is a form of endearment among Adivasi to think about memory of Bissamunda associated with various different facets. And one example to illustrate this is that there is degrees of difference in the way Adivasis personalize Birsa. So for instance, Birsites were a group of Birsa's follower and followed specific strand of Birsa's identity and his religious worldview often personalize Birsa as an Adivasi that contains in itself a very distinct identity than those other Adivasis who perhaps be consumers of Haria, which is a form of a rice beer, and they would make often through my interviews a clear distinction between themselves and the ordinary Adivasi, as they would say, that we are different, you know, we're different from other. So I think in that way, memory is also a point of reference in identifying with a certain worldview or representation of the past. It's significant in contemporary India specifically because we know that there has been a rise of appropriation of historical figure who may have had perhaps more differentiated role and varied ideas of India's independence and political mobilization than it come, come to be used. And perhaps I can illustrate this as we go on talking. Yes, because I actually wanted to bring up this phenomenon of statues and memorials and these forms of, we might call them public memorialization through statues and and so on. I mean, this has been for quite some time politically significant in India. I think even, even a casual traveler to India will encounter and also recognize Gandhi's iconography in so many places. We have Ambedkar's iconic figure also in public spaces across the country. Politicians such as Mayawati, when she was in power in, in UP, was of course uh, famous for populating public spaces with statues and symbolism that we popularly associate with the Dalit movement and, and Dalit politics. I'm thinking about Goa, where I happen to work these days, 
There's recently been an unfolding controversy over the symbolism of Shivaji in public spaces. And maybe loyal listeners to this podcast will have come across an episode we did some on the sort of symbolism and iconography of Lord Pashurama also as a mobilizing symbol occupying public spaces in India. Within this sort of complicated landscape of statues and public memorialization, how does Birsa's statue, these memorials or the built environment, how does this shape politics in contemporary Jharkhand? Or put differently, why is the making of Birsa's statue so significant, politically speaking? Yeah, such an interesting question, right? So I would answer this in two ways. So one is more general an effective use of statue as forms of political extension of political ideologies. And, you know, you rightly mentioned about this large-scale iconography of Gandhi and Ambedkar. But in one of the chapters on actually statue, I contrast and try and establish the tension that exists between and amongst iconography of a certain ideal. And I look at how Dalit icons, and especially the statue of Mayavati, became a subject of political discussion. And the discussion, and I try and lay out how the discussion often, whenever there's a discussion around the idea of statue and memorial, is driven by the fact of monetary investment. And I feel it completely overlooked the role, the affective role that these built environment play in construction of a public space, as we know in India. I don't think there is any thing called public space in India as independent of caste, as independent of the ways in which social life of Indians are structured in public place in general. So I try and first explain how caste as this sort of structuring social and political reality of India in itself present a complicated question of access. So Mayabati's statue in that sense, completely and highlight the caste dominance of public space by placing herself in the line with other Dalit icon. She makes an intervention in this sort of flat idea of public space as though it's accessible. I feel that we don't see similar kinds of, and you know, it, it's generative of various many discussions. And you know, you can have a discussion on whether or not you need that scale of a memorialization in public space and what it might do to informing public about certain ideas of a figure. But more generally, I think there's a clear difference between Dalit icons and their statues as opposed to Adivasi. And I think there are two problems here. One is that very much, and I think it's it's established that Adivasi historiography remains quite underdeveloped. So the literature that we have, which is quite crucial, you know, decades of work by Prathma Banerjee, Sangeeta Das Gupta, Daniel Roycroft, but also and especially by you know, Ram Dayal Munda, who often don't get cited, even though we think and write about, and that's a separate question, but it remains quite underdeveloped to be effectively be able to realize the potential of that historiography. And therefore, the representation then in forms of statues and memorials are underdeveloped in terms of political potential that it might present as compared to, let's say, Dalit iconography or memorialization, because those memorialization already assumes a dialogue ongoing about Dalit assertion in public space, whereas because the Adivasi historiography or writings on Adivasi politics is not developed in the way of iconography that we often find ourselves in a situation where it doesn't pose as much of attention that a Dalit icon might. I think in case of 
Pisa statue and memorial and more generally built environment, it's deeply significant because it has proliferated over a matter of three decades in a scale that's completely unimaginable, especially within Jharkhand. But I have also seen Birsa's statue in tea, tea gardens in Assam. And I know from the work of Philip Zeminik, which is on mini India, that you find statues of Birsa even, on, even in Andaman and Nikuba, where you have had a historical migration process. I think it's significant for one exclusive reason, which is tied to the demographic dividend of vote share that emerges. So often these statues are used as an extension of seeking an entry into an area that remain well outside the ambit of extraction. So in one of the chapter, I demonstrate how the construction of a statue in this particular area of Kunti district was actually meant to drive politician to this area that led to further extension of development projects. So statue and built environment in that sense became a tool for the entry of a development discourse that effectively did not often, we know that does not benefit Adivasi because they were not the key participant in the process of laying out that development. And I think Bissas Munda, Bissas statue is significant because so far he hasn't successfully been able to pose any direct challenge to established ideas of political mobilization because he's not often presented in public as an icon who was not only anti-colonial but also effectively anti-Zamindar and in extension to in some ideas also fundamentally against the caste order. But because of the representation of Birsa and active appropriation now as the national hero uh, who contributed to the independence limits his scope of representation as well. But having said that, it's of course, he is a prominent anti-colonial hero, but he's also significant in displaying regional aspiration and questions of control and self-rule. I wanted to return just a little while to to the question of memory, which is something I sort of, when thinking about your work, my sort of mind always re- returns to this issue of, of memory. I mean, you, you discussed it earlier as a particular kind of maybe more personalized embodiment of past history, but also for you as, as a tool through which to, to carry out research. And I think your book also makes... I think a quite unique methodological contribution you pursue in a sense or you propose what you call an ethnography of memory. I wanted to know if you could tell us more about what you mean by this and also through your own experience of working through an ethnography of memory, what are the key challenges for this particular kind of ethnography? Thanks. It's such an interesting question because it reminds me of a conversation I had with my supervisor through my period of writing down my ethnography where I would, on some days I would feel that I could hold memory, on other days it would disappear. So it's such a difficult craft to design to hold that argument because often it's assumed in opposition to history, which is probably not true. But I mean, often ethnographies, I believe, anchor verbal utterances as forms of evidence or tool. In my book, I center the function of hearing to more than voices. So I wanted to fundamentally shift away from this sort of advancing what it might look like to listen in and do things that are not always in forms of verbal utterances. So in other words, in my book, I demonstrate how through extensive survey, literature, interviews, field note, often how built environment extend 
political ideology through affective mediation. And this mediation, for me, often emerged in moments of encounters, in moments of participating in political mobilization, in ritual practices. So, for instance, I present two seemingly different functions of commemoration of Birsamunda in the chapter on commemoration. So, while the state-led commemoration, if you were to see, is in the form of Samadhi Stal, which is a mausoleum site, where politicians every year draw out hundreds of Adivasis, and often they are bid sites, and leads a rally through the city to the memorial situated in Ranchi. Now, this public display of rallying bid site has a clear political function, which is attached to the vote share, demographic value they hold, etc. Whereas the ordinary Adivasi, who live in far-fetched forested area, where development only arrives at the expense of mining and acquisition, do not personalize and commemorate Birsa in the same way you see it in public idealization and memorial processes in the city. So there are several vignettes in the book. When you read through the chapters, I recount how Birsa is often understood as Adivasi first. So unlike caste Hindu society, where veneration of ideal is quite rampant, often as Hindu warrior, that is a common phenomenon we see amongst Adivasi, they often consider Adivasi icons as one among equal. And it's a sentiment that's quite prevalent for Birsa as well, and specifically for him. And there were several instances where I have had long extended conversation with elder members of the society in Kuti, in several other villages within the Kuti district that had reassured that there is a prevalent sentiment among people that attempt to treat Birsa as one among equal. So then coming back to your question, so what does it mean to do ethnography of memory? So for me, ethnography of memory then is an attempt towards crafting a narrative about memorial statues, stone slab, that are forms of subaltern speech, often represented through embodied forms of experiences. And in this process, various social composition that shape the memo, you know, remembering and forgetting, often make history felt lived and seen at all in once, right? And in this way, I mean, telling of the history as we live and experience it, the book looks at memory as not only for what it is remembered, you know, facts and data, but how it is remembered. And that is the quality of and the meaning, therefore, of the past by placing narrative and meaning that memory hold in present day. So ethnography of memory then for me is about moving away. And I think in book, I explicitly mention how Spivak's canonical piece on Can the Subaltern Speak has in some way gone on to perpetuate the literary provocation that was meant to start a dialogue. So instead of can the subaltern speak, there's been several writing that assume they cannot. And in the book, I try not contest, but extend the discussion into changing the question. So I'm interested not so much in can the subaltern speak, but about can we listen? So moving away from, let's say, utterances and verbal speech to structures of hearing. And in doing that, I try and present these different affective mediation through stone slabs, memorials, and statue, and, and display how subalterns have always spoken. It's the lack of structures of hearing that has made them appear mute or silent. I think it's fair to say that the book has been 
really well received. I mean, we happen to be in India, I think, around the same time earlier this year, and not in the same parts of India, but at least I could virtually follow the, the whole series of book talks that you held in many different parts of North India. I was sitting in Western India, and there were quite many of these book talks. And from what I could make out, they were also well attended, most of them. I mean, that's, of course, because this is a great book. There's no doubt about this. But I suppose it might also have something to do with more generally a kind of growing interest in what we might broadly call Adivasi studies. And you also already mentioned earlier some of the important figures who have contributed to the making of this particular field of scholarship in the past decades. In closing, where do you see this, this field moving during the coming years? Thanks. Yes, the book has been really well received and it's to the kindness of people who have invited me to speak uh, at several forum but i'm also like genuinely very thankful to engaged young scholars so across different book talks in delhi i was really impressed with the scale of participation by young students in india who are trying to write and deal and read extensively on adivasi history and politics and I feel that sort of engagement was well envisioned while I was writing the book. So in, in that sense, I'm actually very thankful to everyone who really takes the time off to actually read and attend to the writing I have done. With Adivasi, I think it brings me back to the, the book has an extended preface, which is quite unusual in a way that it's lay out the question of ethics and positionality that often we know within anthropological writing in India is overlooked for reasons unclear to me. But I try and lay out who I am as a researcher from an upper caste community and what that might mean in terms of access to the field. And not just as a form of an apology and not just this kind of declaration of guilt, but as a way to teach myself to do research as I progress within academia, but also to be attentive to and honor the stories of people who rest faith in you while you do these research in conflicted areas. And through that, I thought it's a good entry to come back to what we know as Adivasi studies. I definitely feel and I believe number of other people do that that there's there's been very little to no representation of adivasis within writings on them and often the language is violent you know so you say this book is up on adivasi which and i make these choices of words in the book in the preface to move away from these epistemic violence as it is but the idea is that how do you make it more substantial. And in this book, at least, I make a very small attempt of relying a lot on Adivasi sources by Adivasi intellectuals. So there's a huge legacy of Adivasi intellectuals who have established a great deal of conceptual world making within this kind of literature and don't get cited, don't often get written about. And if get written about, it's always in reference to someone else who's not Adivasi. So I try to make these choices of relying a lot and citing citation practice of using Adivasi literature written by Adivasi scholar. And in that sense, it opened up a very great question that all of us, and I think particularly, I don't know of others, but I take it to myself that can and how ways in which I can write in and with Adivasis in India more generally. But I developed this idea of solidarity, which is 
which rest on the recognition that I am a participant in the process of writing my own ethnography in the field. So it's not a representation of other people's voice, but it's a solidarity that is not patronage, but one that grows over the time through multiple ways in which we can make choices to address these long-standing tension. And where do I see this field moving? I think it's going to intensify and pose some serious and very important question within the field as you will see more and more Adivasi literature by Adivasi writers come in public and there's enough already that we don't speak about. So I feel that Adivasi studies will have to be decolonized to begin with because it's overpopulated by people who are not from within the community and there is an absolute worth in spending time thinking about when we write about these geographies and people and the relationship we share in India as the deeply divided, socially stratified society governed by caste logic. What does it mean as an author, as a very responsible and ethical author, to be writing about a community which has had a historical marginalization? So I think I take this challenge, you know, and during the book presentation, I was really, really happy that I got asked this question by n number of young people about positionality and i'm very grateful to my supervisor and to a number of people who've been working on the field and have a commitment towards ethical scholarship is asking for this critical ethical question about representation while we write as scholars not assuming that somehow we are entitled to so i feel that in the times to come this field is going to grow for better with great creative tensions and question but thank you so much for this great talk today, Kenneth. Really enjoyed speaking with you. It was an absolute pleasure to have you here today. And thank you so much for telling us more about your new book. It's titled The Political Life of Memory, Virsa Munda in Contemporary India. And it is available from Cambridge University Press. And it is, of course, highly recommended. My name is Kenneth Bonilson, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.